So in the last few weeks, we've, we've looked at some of the influences and the influencers that we have around us in our lives. And last week, Ben referenced for us the research in this book here, Faith for Exiles. And I'm grateful to Nicole for buying me a copy of this book a few years ago, uh, Faith for Exiles. It's really good. It's, it's a sort of part book, part spreadsheet. So uh, you know who you are, the kind of people that like that sort of thing. I know who you are as well because I'm your pastor, and I confess I'm one of you. That's my kind of thing. So in the Bible, the exiles, and I think many of us know this, these were the people of God. They lived in Judah, and uh, they rebelled against God, and they were invaded by Babylon. They were transported 500 miles away to this pagan city and city-state of Babylon, and they lived as captives in a land that was not their own. And if you want to know more about that part of biblical history, then the book is Daniel. That's the place to begin reading about it. And our own 20-week sermon series on the book of Daniel is the absolute best teaching on it within 17 acres of here. And I warmly just commend that to you. It's, it's really quite okay. At least every other sermon is. So, uh, in short, the problem for the exiles, they're living in Babylon... And I think their problem was that they woke up and they were now immersed in a culture that was not their own. And they had to figure out, how are we going to worship God in a land that is fundamentally hostile to what we believe? Well, the authors of this book suggest for us that the very same question faces us today. Because in a way, we're now living as exiles right here in the USA. We have not moved, but the culture has. The culture has shifted, and it shifted so much that it is now taking Christians captive as almost everything we consume undermines what we believe. I would suggest to us, especially as technology improves, as a supercomputer sits on the other side of a screen manipulating what you do, and as isolation now abounds, we are increasingly discipled by our screens. We're discipled and trained by what we consume on one of these, influenced by the influencers on them, and we're living in what the authors of this book describe now as a digital Babylon. We found ourselves in a place that we are not from. In one of the charts, one of the many graphs and charts in this book, they depict for us Uh, Graphically, how for every 19 hours of material that we consume through our screens, just one of them is in some way spiritual. That, by the way, is a statistic that refers only to the Christians. Just one in 19. Think about that for a minute. Just uh, if graphs are not your thing, picture your own day. Imagine waking up at 5 a.m., and being online solidly without a break until midnight. And then imagine what you would be immersed in for those 19 hours, immersed in politics and education and work and finance and gaming and sports and weather, entertainment, and doubtless erotica. And that would leave you with just one single hour for anything spiritual. Remember as well, This is just the Christians, the exiles in the digital Babylon, not the locals. And that sounds bad. And I think Peter would say to us, yeah, but it's even worse. 
Because I think first Peter might have a zoom out on that whole block of 19 hours, look at the whole day and say, in a way, because all of those 19 hours, every single one of them is influencing what you think and thus influencing what you do, in a way, the whole 19 hours is spiritual. And then I think what Peter would have us do is he would have us zoom in on that one single hour that we expressly call spiritual and say to us, yeah, but what do you mean by spiritual anyway? Because spiritual is not the same as Christian. I recently made a horrible mistake. I went into TJ Maxx. I don't know if you've been in there. I don't know if you've seen it. Uh, but uh, it has, spiritual, it has a, a sort of spiritual corner in TJ Maxx. And do you go in and you go past the, uh, go past the luggage and then past the, the purses and the jewellery. You go through the little pots and pans, the, the lighting, carpets, dog baskets, and then finally you get to the spiritual corner. And you, at this point you're thinking, for a man who claims to have been in there just once, he has a pretty strong working knowledge of <laughs> the layout of the room, right? Uh, the spiritual corner. This is what, look, there's going to be some cranks. They're going to come in, just all the spiritual, but just shove them in the far corner. And on the shelves in the spiritual corner, it's approximately a 19th of the content of the store, uh, you can buy a decorative cross. And you can buy, this time of year, you can already buy a nativity scene. And you can purchase a throw cushion that says thankful or blessed on it. There's nothing wrong with those things. Our house has those things. Our church has them. You can see them all over the place. Virtually anything pretty in this church, apart from you, has come from TJ Maxx. Nothing wrong with it. But when you start to dig in through the spiritual shelves, what you discover is that the Christian stuff is mixed and mingled in with all sorts of other things as well. So jumbled up alongside the cross is a statue of a Buddha. And there's a gnome doing a magic spell, and there's a little pillow that says, welcome to our haunted house. What are you welcoming in to your haunted house, Christians? It ain't something that you want in there, and I expect a call in a week to get rid of it. That is the theological washing machine that we now live in in these United States. Welcome to Digital Babylon, where all the spiritual stuff is mixed up, the cross with the cranky gnome. So if you're going to navigate that world, you're going to find your way and sift your way through that shelf, you are going to need someone to guide you through it. And the question for us this morning is simple. Who is it? Who or what will you allow to influence you? Who will show you the way? Would you please turn with me to the book of 2 Peter? And we're in chapter 3 this morning. And we'll begin at verse 3. So 2 Peter 3, 3. And he says this. He says, Know this. Scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. In the words of Taylor Swift, scoffers going to scoff. What they do. They take their name from what they do. Their activity forms their identity. Scoffers scoff. So what else would you expect scoffers to do? Uh, in Greek, these are the deluders, the deceivers, and the deriders. Those are the first, second, and third definitions of that word in a, in a Greek dictionary. They mock the truth, which means, in other words, they teach what is false. Been looking at false teachers for 
but this is the fifth week now, I guess, and Peter's still zooming in on these influences and influencers that come into our life that teach something other than the truth. These are going to be your ministers through digital Babylon. These are the new holy men and holy women of this cultural moment, and they want to guide you along the way. Now, why do they do that? Why do they want to lead you? The answer is because they want something from you and for themselves. Still in verse 3, they are following their own sinful desires. Even those with a million followers follow something. And Peter says, if you boil it down to one thing it is that they're following, it is probably themselves. It is their own hearts, their own desires. Their intention and their need is from themselves. The motive of a false teacher is bit by bit to shift the culture until the culture allows and then even approves of what it is they want to do. And do you know what stands in the way? God. He's right in the way of their plans. So here comes a tactic that a false teacher will employ. In verse 4, Peter says, they, the false teachers, will say, where is the promise of his coming? Like, where is he? Hey, you Christians go around saying, Ooh, you better be careful or God's going to get you. Well, he hasn't. So where is he? Forever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. In other words, you Christians, you love to say Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again, but he hasn't, has he? Where is he? What they'll tell you is this. They'll tell you that in the beginning, God made the world and then nothing happened for a really long time. And then Jesus came and then nothing happened again. So if you think about it, God's primary activity through history has been doing nothing. So maybe we should all just get over God. By the way, note, you've just had a lecture about what's in the Bible from someone who never reads it. And you've just had a lecture about what goes on within the body of Christ from someone who is not a member of it. But it's so easy to fall for this stuff. Famously, the British Humanist Association, they ran this advertising campaign. They plastered uh, a slogan all over London buses, the red buses, all up the sides of them. Uh, The advertising campaign was mocking God with the phrase, there's probably no God, so stop worrying and enjoy life. Well, it backfired. Many Christians found it so incredibly helpful for evangelism that we donated to the campaign. And we said, you know what, if uh, even the atheists think that there might be a God, and they're even admitting to being worried about this question, we can help you. Why don't you join our church? And uh, it worked. So the American Humanist Association, always learning what not to do from the Brits, they came up with a better slogan, and they said, they had their own campaign, saying, why believe in a God, just be good for goodness sake? You remember that one? That backfired as well because it references the single strongest argument against secular humanism, that left alone, left to our own devices, we cannot be good. We're not capable of being good on our own. That the fifth greatest band in human history, Roxette, I don't know, that's not funny, Roxette sang, they sang Listen to Your Heart. Remember that song? (laughs) Prophet Jeremiah says, don't listen, (coughs) listen, No, 
I want to stay married. The prophet Jeremiah said, do not listen to your own heart. It is deceitful above all other things. Listen to God. Listen to your heart when he's calling. No, don't. Um, Oh, terrible. Cat's howling. Uh, By the way, uh, I know that I've referenced TJ Maxx, Taylor Swift, and Roxette in one sermon. Uh, I'm a real man. My favorite uh, hobbies are repairing trucks, wrestling, blowing stuff up, that kind of thing, small engine repair. And I like heavy metal. Uh, I drove a truck yesterday. We listened to heavy metal, honestly. Ask my kids. So, 20th century, the saw so many experiments. I'm just trying to be, you know, trying to reach different groups of the congregation. I don't want people just like me. If you're a Taylor Swift person, go for it. Uh, The 20th century saw all these experiments in in getting rid of God. Mass experiments of, of what happens when you eliminate God from the public discourse. We just conducted the same experiment over and over again throughout the last century. And we used, instead of the word of God, we used our own desires, our own hearts, as a moral compass for society. Every single time we did this, we built a Babylon. And every single time, it ended in exactly the same way. Whenever good was redefined according to the contents of our hearts, evil abounded and people suffered. In Mao's China, 47 million people died of starvation. In Hitler's Germany, 13 million died through Holocaust and war. In Stalin's Russia, the chaos was so bad that we don't know the number. And we can only estimate that it was somewhere between the two. And so in just those three regimes, each of which lasted just a few years in one place, we have over 100 million people dead through this experiment. And at the same time, in the same century as that was going on, the same thing was repeated in the Congo, in Cambodia, in North Korea. And even though several million people died under those regimes, we don't even talk about them, we don't teach them, because the horror wasn't big enough to make the point. Whenever God is removed, evil abounds. Whenever good is redefined according to the contents of our hearts, evil abounds, and it does that because we are we keep falling for it. Every single time someone says, listen to your heart, we keep falling for the same deception. We keep allowing ourselves to be taught about God by people who do not know him because it's tempting. It is a lie that is tailor-made for our desires. It's the original deception. We're not unique. If we've listened to our hearts, we're not weird. We're not some strange believer who doesn't belong. We all do this. The very first deception. A few pages into the Bible, Adam and Eve hear this lie from the beginning. Satan slithers up. Well, he walks up. He's got legs at this point, And he says, you don't need God. Where is he? Hey, where's God? What does God know anyway? Did he really say that? Or is he just afraid that if you eat this fruit, you might become like him? And you'll know what... He knows, and you'll do what he does. And Why don't you just listen to your heart, and then you could be like God? So Peter says, don't take a lesson from that guy. Let's not speculate what might be in this book by listening to people who don't even read it. Let's not get our heresy from hearsay. Let's read it for ourselves. 
And then he says, let's go back to creation. Let's go back, shall we, Peter says, to that favorite moment of the atheists, that number one conversation that they always begin with. And he says to the atheists, he says to the false teachers, you're starting way too late. The beginning is not the beginning. God is. God is the beginning. Verse 5, for they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago. And the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. Where did it come from, all of this, if there is no God? You also forget verse 6. He says that the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. God has always been involved in the world that he made. And then, for example, he says Noah and the flood. There's many examples he could have picked Thousands of examples of God's intervention in history. But he chooses this one because it's emblematic. It's an example of of many because it reveals to us, Noah and the flood, that not only does God create, but that he also intervenes in his creation. And as he intervenes, he both judges and he rescues. An incredibly helpful example for us. And of course, Peter said just a few weeks ago, if he's done it before, then he will do it again. I think one of our problems is if we take our spiritual direction from a combination of TikTok and TJ Maxx, we might not find some of these things out. And so people say to me at this point, they go, yeah, 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 that's great, Alex, but that's just the Bible, right? You were just in the Bible. This is just stories from the old days. I don't really see very much of God right now, not active in my life. I don't really see any answers to my prayer right now. I don't feel any release from this addiction that I'm facing right now. I don't experience any healing. I don't see the casting out or away or off of anything demonic in my life. I don't experience the present active power of the Holy Spirit in my life. I don't see any miracles in my life. I don't see anything going on. I don't see any people growing in their faith. I don't see anybody coming to faith. I don't see the church growing. I don't see baptisms. I don't see miracles on a daily basis. I don't see anything at all. And I just want to say to them, I do. I see loads. Because I'm not being influenced by this. I'm in the Word. And I'm in the body of Christ. We're not going to see anything if we're not immersed in the Word and connected to the body. This is the place where you see the stuff. In this book, Faith for Exiles, the authors report that only 4% of people under the age of 25 can tell you the rudiments of what's in the Bible. If you gave them a minute to describe the arc of salvation history from Genesis to Revelation, Only 4% could do it. By the way, that's 4% of church kids, not just the general population. 4%. It also tells us that only 9% have someone in their lives capable of explaining it to them. Such is the providence of God that this is both Reformation weekend and All Hallows' Eve. It's the one weekend where we recall And remember just how blessed we are to have both the word of God in our own language and our own hands and a body of Christ and saints along the way who have 
lived by this and who can teach us something from their experience as older brothers and sisters in Christ. We call ourselves in this church, we call ourselves a community church preaching the gospel. You know that's true because we put it on a mug. And we did it to emphasize a couple of things. First of all, this will always be a church where the truth is told. The preaching and proclamation, not just in the pulpit, but amongst ourselves in every room, will always be gospel-driven and gospel-focused. It will always come back to the Lordship of Christ and his unique atoning work for us on the cross and what a difference that can make in your lives, always. Secondly, we are a community church. We're not a ghetto church. We do not want to be a weird ghetto of only one type of person, only really old, or only really young, or only anything. We want to be a church for the whole community. We want to be a church that, that is, is filled with intergenerational ministry. I don't want us to be a church of, of wise old saints with lots to say and no one to teach. That's rubbish. You're robbing your oldest members of an activity and you're robbing your youngest members of some help. And I don't want to be a, a church of just trendy people, everybody under the age of 30, with no one to come alongside them when something happens to say, that sucks, but it happened to me. And let me tell you what Jesus did for me in that moment. Yeah, we went through this thing. I lost my job, I lost my baby, I lost my marriage, I lost my house, and I'm still here. And Jesus Christ healed me from these things. I don't want to be a church that drags the generations apart. That's, that's not a church. In fact, the message version of 1 Corinthians 12 says that would not be a body, but a monster. Church full of arms and nothing else. Church full of eyeballs. It's grotesque. So we need the word and we need each other. God's vision for a church is that it immerses itself in the word and it gathers around the table with every single person in the village that could be there, there. And of course, if you're not in the word and you're not in the church, then you will not see God because you're on your phone. So Peter says in chapter 3, verse 1, and we'll conclude with some of these thoughts, I'm writing to you, beloved. And already you see there in that word, beloved, uh, agapetos, you start to see this, this, this pastor's heart coming out of this man. An elder speaking to his own church saying, come on in, come alongside, let me show you what is written in the word of God and let me show you what Jesus Christ has done for me. Modeling pastoral eldership to us through very scripture itself. Stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets, that's the Old Testament, and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles in the new. Modeling biblical eldership right here by asking the central question that we always, always have to ask every week, who is it all about, this thing that we do? But Jesus, who's it all about? Note here, final thought, Jesus is described by Peter as both Lord and Savior. This is the sovereign judge who chose trial and a sinner's death for us and for our salvation. Many, many influencers want to become your Lord. None of them can be your Savior. 